Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm, underline blank space, Jason Hazley. I'm, no it's gone, I've tried. Um, I'm John Morris. Jo- oh, John Morris. And as usual we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both <laughs> approaches are valid. Our special guest today is one of the hottest names in town at the moment, stand-up, actor, broadcaster, Nish Kumar. Hello. Hello. Hi, Nish. <laughs> Blimey, the mash is doing well, isn't it? It's, well, it's we're surviving. We're getting on. We're doing comedy about the news. The news does not stop. Yeah, I know. And, but you've got that crucial thing where now stuff is being clipped and going viral. Yeah, sure. Which is brilliant, because that is like... I, I was wondering, is for years people have been saying, where's the Daily Show, where's yeah. that thing? Mass Report looks like it's getting close to being that thing now, doesn't it? Well, it looks like it's the yeah. one that's actually got its teeth in. It's we Yeah, and we've... The online stuff has really helped the show yeah. go to a level that we couldn't have possibly taken it to just on telly. To be honest, the biggest factor in all of it is that we got 10 episodes straight out of the gate. I really believe that yeah. that's the reason that this type of show hasn't caught on before because you can only learn how to do it by doing it. You know, yes. we, yeah. we did we did a, a pilot that wasn't for broadcast and we learned roughly how to do it, but nothing like the kind of pressure when you're doing it week on week. You know, when we did the pilot, they had a week to edit it. Now they have 24 hours when, yeah. it's, when we're actually in the middle of a series. So you can't contrive that situation no. of having to turn it over week after week. And so, I, you know, I, I think back to those first four and I saw a little clip from the first one <laughs> And the panic in my eyes—it <laughs> really is like—and it, the show 
we did four in the summer of 2017 and then we did six in January 2018 and we've done another six in the end of 2018 and the difference between the first four and the subsequent 12 is marked. Well, people are so intolerant of comedy. It's it's, it's the bane of my life. People say, oh, yeah, you should be watching so-and-so high-end drama. It it gets good about episode eight, series two. Are you giving it that much time? Whereas comedy, within 20 seconds, someone's on Twitter saying they don't enjoy it. So it's very easy for not only for the audience to lose confidence in something, but for the performers to lose confidence in criticism. To give something like 10 episodes to, to bed in, yeah. especially when it's trying to find a voice. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I mean, especially with a show like this that's a kind of, you know, topical satire show, you are trying to find the tone of it. And yeah. Yeah. the first four, we, we, we were encouraged to think of the first four as being four separate pilot shows. Yeah. And just to try things and get stuff wrong and get stuff right. And uh, and I think we really did. It really helped us by the time we came back for the next six. But what I would also say is that the first four, whilst they were messy, were actually received fine. Like the right. reviews and the sort of general online feedback was actually pretty good. And we really benefited from dramatically lowered expectations. <laughs> we benefited <laughs> so hard from the lowered expectations. Because the, literally the week of the first programme, there were two articles in various newspapers being like, this is obviously going to be shit. We yeah. all know it's going to be shit. Well, before it had gone out. Before it had gone out. Because oh. it because those type of shows haven't succeeded before. They've but, tried so many times. Everyone kept saying, why can't we do this? The weird thing was that we'd exported John Oliver. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they went, well, surely we can do this. And then they kept trying it, and people were so hostile to it. For some reason, it was a, it felt like uh, that thing where British people can't be in Friends. Yeah, of For some course. reason, the yeah, voice yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. And you're thinking, but, but the weird thing is that it's a British voice that works. Yeah, it's, it's very odd watching John destroy it in the States, like really nail that tone of show and hearing him in interviews talk about the fact that he just couldn't get anything like this away when he was living in the UK and, you know, The Daily Show offered him a kind of way out of a system that wasn't rewarding his particular skill set. But, I mean, thank God he's not in this country because otherwise I would not be able to eat. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think that the easiest thing to do in the world would be to take a format that's worked in another country and just bring it over. Yeah, sure. But there are tricks that work in MASH that that have worked in Daily Show and Colbert that no one's successfully tried over here. I love the thing you've got where the anchor is representing a different point of view than the correspondent. Sure. Which has always been got wrong. It was always, even when we did... uh, we worked on 10 o'clock live and always there was a feeling you roughly knew that most of the presenters were on the side of right yeah, yeah. so you threw across to someone doing a package and it was a bit like a column in the Observer or the Guardian it was yeah. sort of a liberal media column With, and everyone seemed to have missed the joy of having someone pretend to be unreasonable yeah, sure. which is yeah. the Colbert <laughs> trick which Rachel's yeah. doing so well yeah. and it just is really funny yeah it's also some of that is just from like in the pilot which didn't get broadcast she was immediately awful to me <laughs> <laughs> I think she just had uh, Rachel and I have known each other for years and we're mates and when we, but when we started work, she obviously and she's a actress and comedian but she's also a phenomenal improviser yeah, and right. just in that first record I think she just for whatever reason her kind of improv spidey sense had a sense <laughs> that her being unbelievably hostile to me whilst smiling would be incredibly funny her bullying me is there's some kind of fun to it's be a, had with it's that it's a sort of Partridge and Chris Morris yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, thing yeah, that, yeah. but also props to the broadcaster for giving you a long run as well because yeah. that's what you need for the thing to bed in for people to notice 100 
percent. You know, one of the one of the real the really sad things about radio comedy now is the fact that it's commissioning fours. Mm. So and TV. Well, Rick and Bob are just having a run of four, and you're thinking you'll finish watching some comedy, and there'll be a trailer for. More drama and more drama and more yeah, drama yeah, and more yeah. drama. And you go, genuinely, the one thing I can't keep up with at the moment on television is drama. Yeah. It's saturation. And it's all good. It's great. It's world-beating quality. Yeah. And it's great. And you finish four episodes of a comedy and then you go, I wonder when... Um, when's that coming when's back? When's yeah. uh, another one of those coming back? And Two it's years' just, time. Yeah, it's answer. just absolutely insane that the yeah. when the whole reason that, that things get successful, especially with comedy, is it's habit. Yeah. People come to love something. They want it to be there. We're very lucky with BBC Two are such cheerleaders for the show and they sort of encourage... I mean, but it does feel like there's just no money around right now. And yes, yeah. The BBC... I mean, that when the like the government... I mean, I've already dragged politics into it immediately. <laughs> Good. Here we go. We're off. <laughs> Every time I have a conversation with one of my friends where I bring politics out, they go, oh, here it goes. Off <laughs> oh, here he is on his high horse. But the specific cuts made to the BBC and particularly the moment that... The BBC had to assume responsibility for paying for the license fee for over 65 yeah. Yeah. been from the government. That's knackered that radio comedy for a start. That, we know that knackered everything. And the pressure that's being exerted by the government on Channel 4. You know, yeah. the BBC and Channel 4 are the places in Britain still that we go to get new comedy made. Yeah, yeah well, ITV yeah. has one slot, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, um, they've been doing some cool stuff. Danny ITV Taylor's two. show on I ITV2. Two has been fairly yeah. lively. Yeah. I always had plebs and things. It's worked really hard. Yeah, but ITV... There's an assumption at ITV that soap operas are where people get their laughs, yeah, which is yeah. understandable, but people get out of the habit of, of watching comedy. Yeah. It's just killing it for its own sake. I mean, we, the, the terrifying things that happen with... Uh, this will all be cut out, but I'm just going to say it anyway. With budgets where that, that policy that BBC had of DQF, de- delivering quality first, yeah. where every time a series came back, it got a quarter knocked off its budget. Yeah. And we had that with Murder Successful. They were saying, can you do basically effectively a movie spoof that can work for BBC Three and be broadcast on BBC One after Graham Norton, and every time it comes back, we will knock a quarter yeah, of your budget yeah, off. Yeah. And you go, this is like a challenge, and I'm a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> can, can you eat this? Can you? Come? And and I remember talking to the guys who made Wolf Blood, the kids' show. That was like yeah. the Twilight thing. There was all sort of people transforming into vampires and stuff. Yeah. And it was so successful, it came back again and again and again to a point where they had literally no money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're thinking you should be rewarding the people who've done well, but you appear to be trying to get rid of them. It's like it's terrible. It's like trying to work under stunt conditions. It's like, <laughs> Uh, you can juggle, but what if it's all on fire? How can you do it while you're being sick? It's just, it's the weirdest experience. It's very hard to talk about at the moment because I think that there's a there's a feeling in comedy that it's a bit besieged. Yeah, so yeah. So it's, it's really nice to that, see yeah. something doing well and also being given a chance to do well. Yeah, I feel like we, we're really riding on a lot of goodwill. We feel very supported by our peers and co-workers. People are just relieved to see something new get away and be given a go. Yeah, and be yeah. allowed to kind of, you know, find its feet. It, it, it is a shame. I mean, I feel like, I mean, which will actually bring us on to the thing that we're going to talk about. Mm. There's just a period when I was sort of like a teenager, the early 2000s, when it felt like you just couldn't move for great television comedy. That's really true. Yeah, that's really true. It, yeah. You know, because we, we were watching, you know, The Office and Partridge, and then in the States, Arrested Development. You know, there was a lot of stuff and 30 rock yeah starting in that period sort of 
towards the end a little of that golden period. age sort of post office yeah, golden age that it are, really was and in the run up to that as well the, the little pre-office burst that had I'm Alan Partridge yeah human remains human pe- remains people yeah. like us like sort of stuff that was that's regarded as a bit culty but was completely in the same key yeah. very rich very profitable um, and being produced at volume because I think you, yeah. get a, you get a bigger chance of hits you yeah, can produce yeah. more stuff. And there's a habit sometimes with comedy because the budgets are so tight and the slots are so competitive. Well, once you've got one of something, yeah. you go, well, we've got one of those. Yeah. And actually, it's quite healthy to have two or three of them. Yeah. It would be better. It used to be that you could have two or three shows that were similar on different channels for slightly different audiences. Yeah. It's like village pubs. There's no point in having one village pub. You want one village pub for people who want to watch the sport. Yeah. One village pub for people who want to have a nice meal with the family. Yeah, and one village pub for racism. Yeah, you exactly. To... A safe place for racists. <laughs> Where are the racists going to go? <laughs> you can't go to the King's Head because the guy in there is quite liberal. <laughs> I think you're, what we're talking about is a, is a period where comedy, though, has been made in enough volume that some outliers could get through. Yes. That would not necessarily set the world on fire immediately, but would find an audience. And comedy is something I think where niches yeah. are occupied very well. Drama, everyone brawl... It's pronounced niche. Is it? Sorry. <laughs> God, I feel so terrible. Um, niche Here he comes. That's right, niche. Uh, you should develop an alter ego called niche. Yeah. It's extremely esoteric jokes. <laughs> but comedy is, comedy is somewhere where niches are occupied very successfully and uh, everyone agrees roughly what's dramatic. Yeah, sure. A, ki- a child gets kidnapped and a policeman's after them. Oh, watch, that's fine. Yeah. Whereas comedy is so... I remember the example I always use is Big Bang Theory, which I don't really like. And I'm yeah. like, I don't really like Big Bang Theory. I really like Silicon Valley, which is exactly the same <laughs> show. But yeah. through uh, like a 2% change. That's... And I, I, I go, yeah, I'll watch that one. I wouldn't watch the other one. It's fun. It's so funny. I mean, that's the joy of going and watching a whole load of shows in Edinburgh. Uh, that, yeah. it, that sit in the comedy section, mm. and you so you can go and watch a stand-up. You can go and watch a one-liner stand-up, and those are already two different, completely yeah. different subgenres. Then you can go and see a sketch show that's just an hour of disconnected sketches. Then you can go and see a sketch show that's basically a play, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and then you can go and see an hour of character comedy where you know it's kind of halfway between the previous two forms, and the, it's all under that that banner of comedy is such yeah. a broad you know as long as people are laughing you can sort of do anything it's the, the only criteria I mean one of the things that's really delicious about comedy the only criteria is are you laughing yeah and it's very odd when you realise in the current climate where comedy is is fighting for slots how rarely you yeah, genuinely yeah. feel that belly laugh and the joyous thing about today is because you yeah. brought something in which you sat and watched this morning and I was by lunchtime I was sore from laughing a feeling I've not had in ages yeah. it was just a delight especially at the moment when things are a bit shitty Yeah, it's just lovely to lose yourself in laughter what, what have you brought in for us? I've brought in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place oh. yes. <laughs> I'm Garth Marenghi author dreamweaver visionary plus actor you are about to enter the world of my imagination You are entering my dark place. The comedy nerds. Oh, man. Valhalla. The only thing that would make Garth Marenghi's dark place is if they'd only made one episode of it. It would make it better. I think six is too many. What do you you call dark place? It's not a sitcom. 
it's, it's a parody. It's, a, it's also what's great about it is it's, I remember for years because we do parody and pastiche. Yeah. That's our wheelhouse. And I remember for years going, channels just went, we want anything except parody and pastiche. <laughs> and then they went, we want anything except sketch show. They slowly sort of say, we don't want, we don't want, we don't want. Parody and pastiche was the first one they stopped asking. For. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's hard to say, isn't it? Because it's parody, pastiche, mockumentary. Yeah. It's this. I it's mean, a world, a they've got a fake on. world. Well, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's like nothing else, isn't yeah. it, really? I, think that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons it's, it's got such a, a huge cult following, is because yeah. apart from the fact that there's only six episodes of it, there's nothing else like this anywhere. No. There might be, you can contradict me, but I can't think of another when, one. A time has been massively kind to this. When this first came yeah. out, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. My big problem with it was it was a parody of something that didn't exist at the time. <laughs> And what's re- it was a parody of people sitting around talking about a lost TV show that had never been put on. Now, since then, thanks to DVD commentaries and YouTube and Netflix documentaries, I am surrounded constantly by talking heads talking yeah. about lost projects, searching for Sugarman, those yeah, kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And what's odd is that the thing it's parodying has only recently become a thing. <laughs> so it's such an odd parody. And if you talk to Matt, who made it, he said they, they bolted the talking heads on quite late. Right, OK. It was supposed to just oh, be... Oh, so they were just going to... do a oh yeah. Like, you were supposed to lose yourself in a 1980s version of a Lars von Trier, <laughs> Stephen King horror drama. Because uh, it's it, it spun off from an Edinburgh show. It spun off from from Richard Owadi and, and yeah. Garth Marenghi's. Uh, God, I'm calling Garth Marenghi. And Matt Holmes is, <laughs> he's so in the character. So they did two, right? So it was Neverhead, a Fright Night, and then Neverhead. Neverhead, yeah. yeah. Two Edinburgh shows about a, <laughs> a vain, <laughs> pompous, title, horror author title. who called himself a dream weaver and a fabulous, yeah, yeah. played by Matt in one of his leather jackets. Um, and apparently they used to do all the interviews in character they refused to admit they were people <laughs> really it was a full oh, man. 360 degree pastiche yeah so he's Garth Marenghi <laughs> who writes these kind of horror books they're and... terrible the kind of horror books that go on a spinner and a news agent yeah exactly Guy yeah. Smith's Crabs and James <laughs> Herbert's The Rat <laughs> If you, if I, I, this afternoon I looked on he had a brilliant author's website back in the uh, yeah, mid 2000s yeah. and I found it on Wayback Machine they'd archived it right? Uh, and it's just basically a list of his books things like The Ooze Can Water Die and what's the, what, one, of the, one of the taglines is Rats Learn to Drive and it's just brilliant it's so funny um, it was lovely I just a brilliant conceit totally rounded and beautifully realised and then well, yeah then there's Dean Lerner who was his publisher yeah. and yep. who who also is the producer and one of the co-stars of the subsequent television show that has spun off this illustrious literary career. And I, I mean, I first watched it. There's actually some debate as to where I first watched this. I think I first saw it with my friend James Skinner's college room when we were at university. Uh, the comedian Ed Gamble claims that he first showed me Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. You're trying I, to identify patient zero here. Yeah, but it, when I first saw it, you know, I was a massive comedy fan. Obviously, immediately recognised Matt because he has one of the great uh, cameos in any sitcom. In The Office. In The Office, yeah, which yes. is one, one of the yes. all-time great. He's the tech guy who is bragging to Gareth. Going go-karting again at the weekend with the lads. Oh, yeah. What, down super carts? Yep. You any good? Came first last time I went. 8 minutes 51, got a certificate. Yeah, well, I went down there the first day it opened, right? And I did a couple of laps. I pulled over. The bloke that runs the thing came over and said, Oi, no professionals. I took my helmet off. I said, I'm not a professional. He said, you're not a professional? I said, no. He said, well, you should be. If I was you, I'd take up Formula One. And if you drive like that, you'd probably be the best in the country. I, I was familiar with him, and I, can't, I think I knew that it had won the 
Perrier because again yeah. that was the time in television commissioning where basically if you won the Edinburgh award you basically were given a TV yeah. show pretty much yeah. I think this stopped that practice <laughs> <laughs> they did this and they went is that what you want I mean yeah. this is this is mythically one of those things that people I, I still talk to people who come out of Edinburgh and there seems to still be a belief that your Edinburgh show will transfer to TV absolutely yeah and I think the last time that actually happened was this it's almost a direct so. transfer of an Edinburgh show totally controlled by the the cast yeah. and the writers. What's amazingly 3D about this? Because it's it's a it's a parody with a, an outer layer around it of of the characters yeah. offset who've made the program. It's a unique vision about a man's unique vision. Yeah, yeah. And it's a program made by vain and ambitious cast members that's been made by I won't say vain, but ambitious cast <laughs> members. The thing it's parodying, it's meant to be, is a joke version of what it actually is, which is a bunch of people have just taken the means of production. Yeah, and said, yeah. Let's make a crazy show, it's, and that's what the characters yeah. have done. It's quite. I mean, it's yeah, it's quite extraordinary. So he, it's the premise of the show is that Garth Marenghi is this celebrated horror writer who made a television show that was very quickly cancelled, and the television show is a kind of supernatural hospital <laughs> drama. <laughs> Even as you say this, you're like, of course this was not successful. But, but they built a hospital on a hellmouth in Romford. They built a hospital on a hellmouth in Romford. <laughs> and that, that's always the great thing about whenever he talks about one of the plots of his books, it's always in Romford or like where like something, there's like a blood monster that tries to attack Bristol. Yeah. Like it's, all, it's, all, it's just something very funny about a horror plot happening in a British city. I, it reminded me, I grew up being full... I mean, kids around the school were always reading James Herbert and Stephen King. And right, yeah. So I don't think I'd read many of them, but I'd seen the back covers where a man in a leather jacket and large glasses <laughs> yeah, was yeah, always yeah. brooding in a chair. Yeah. So you sort of know this character even if you haven't read it. But yeah. they get completely right, that James Herbert horribleness, which yeah, is just sure. a slightly playground prurient interest in rats going inside someone's ear maggots it's just, maggots. maggots 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 he opens oh. each episode by doing a reading yeah. from his, and they just the Dan Brown prose is just yeah. glorious Mike stared in disbelief as his hands fell off from them rose millions of tiny maggots 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 all over the floor of the post office in Leytonstone. I once saw James Herbert interviewed on Light Lunch, um, and uh, and he said, "Do you want to know what the first line of my new novel is? I, I can give it to you exclusively on TV." So they went, "Yeah, of course, yeah, tell us it, James." And he went, "My redemption began in hell." <laughs> And I thought at that moment, I thought that is all I need to hear of that book. I don't need. That's fine. Those that's, five words are enough. But that's beautiful because that could easily be a Garth Marenghi sentence. It's such a specific but brilliantly executed parody. It's a really good voice. It's got the same. I mean, it has something in common with Alan Partridge. It's a completely rounded and occupied character yes. where every bit of the character is visible through the dialogue, through the writing. You know yeah. the kind of guy he is. He's he's pretentious. He's pompous. He's sexist. He's prejudiced. You can see it all through his yeah. writing, and he thinks. He's he's disguised all his shortcomings, yeah. but they're all just visible. There's a terrific one of my favourite jokes ever made by anyone. I found it on the Garth Marenghi website when I dug it up today, which is I love uh, reviews for books that give too much away, <laughs> as in you know what's been cut out. And we we wrote one for Framley, which was uh, the review was dot 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 very good at all, which tells you what the original one was. And, and I was talking to Matt about this, and we couldn't remember what the one was from Garth Marenghi. And I found it this afternoon. It is a work of genius. It's one of his books is reviewed the phrase. It really doesn't get any better, The Observer. (laughs) (laughs) 
and the idea that he has put that on the front cover of his book tells you that brilliant blindness to his own shortcomings. Yeah. I think it's episode one which opens with a, a card with a quote from King Lear and it says King Lear page 46. Page 46. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a perfect joke. <laughs> Yeah, so I watched it. I saw an episode of this. I claimed that I'd seen it before Ed Gamble showed it, but we we all watched it together. And um, it's just one of those things where you go, oh, great, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. Mm. And it became... There were, when we were at university, the way that you knew somebody was into comedy and into, like, the right comedy was they would have the, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and the DVD of this and then the DVD of Stuart Lee's stand-up comedian show yeah. and the day-to-day. Like yeah. those were like the three things you knew someone was like, and the Simpsons book, yeah. not just the Simpsons DVD, but the complete guide to our favourite family. You're, those you're were talking like, about the safety shelf. I used to call it. I go in someone's right, house. Yeah. And go, I'm just checking to see if you've got the safety shelf. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's fine. We're okay. Yeah, we're yeah, yeah. friends you, now. You just you knew immediately yeah. that that those people they're were one in, of us. They were the same. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were in the same kind of. They they were all into the same sort of interests. Like you, because it, it was. It, and I and I'm obsessed with the idea that so many people I know in comedy now are huge fans of this show, and I am fixated on this idea. I, I don't know where this comes from, but there's this idea that the Velvet Underground's first album was bought by ten thousand people, but all of them formed bands. Yeah, and Garth yeah. Brooks' Dark Place. It <laughs> yeah. genuinely feels like it's like the Velvet Underground. Everyone in comedy. It's it, a transatlantic thing as well. Americans oh, absolutely fetishize it. I think partly because it's six episodes long, they go, "I can't believe." Yeah, but it's American comedy geeks. Absolutely, like David Cross absolutely loves Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Like, it's so weird to have a conversation with David Cross and have him quote Dean Lerner. Well, it's got, I mean, the only other thing I know that's even like this in terms of uh, one series coming out and it being perfect uh, is Police Squad. Ah, uh, yes. Which is one. Yeah, yeah. Like, but the great thing about this is he's basically is police squad. Yeah. It's, it's a pastiche of a thing that it's got a. It looks a bit like Salem's Lot. It looks a bit like Kingdom Hospital. Yeah. There are a couple of things it looks a bit like. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it's even though it's a low budget, cheesy thing, it doesn't look bad. No. I mean, it looks this, convincingly like an '80s low-budget horror film. Yeah, and one of the reasons why, I guess, if you if you're talking about comedy and analysing it and breaking it down, this is a kind of perfect thing to talk about, not to blow my own trumpet in terms of my selection. But it's comedy. The comedy exists in every single level. Yes, of Abs- this yeah, absolutely. Production. Absolutely. The sound editing is <laughs> funny. Oh, fucking hell! Do you know what? That was. I was watching it on with headphones on today, yeah. and I thought I. I cannot believe how fucking astonishing the sound is on yeah. this. It's brilliant. There are jokes at the level of the sound, like yeah. Tate, Wow and Flutter. There are whole scenes where it's just been done in ADR because yeah. clearly things didn't work. There are things that are dropped in in ADR which are a different tone from the previous line from the that, same that, actor. That's what, so you know how badly this was put together. That thing is what blew me away. Like it, you hear in the same conversation, uh, like background noise just drop out. Yeah, like the sound yes. mix and the sound editing is funny. There the are cues. Yeah, yeah, the phone yeah. funny. Yeah, there's you, a point where there's a point where Richard Iwadi gets out of his uh, chair and scrapes his scrapes his chair back across the floor and. It's the biggest chair you've ever heard being scraped across the floor. It's completely the wrong noise. I guess being told that I couldn't get a chicken supper was the straw that broke this camel's back. It was unprofessional and girlish. It won't happen again. And so ends a chapter in a book I fear is yet to close, right, Dag? I just can't believe the temp is dead. It's all right, Rick. We'll get another one.
the, in the first episode when he's walking through the graveyard <laughs> and his footsteps are not the texture of the mud that he's walking through. Yeah. So he's like walking, he's like... <laughs> <laughs> There's scenes where they've clearly had to jump cut between them, yeah. the idea being that the t- it didn't work out. He's and holding a cup and then a spade. The, and then they obviously wanted... That's that particular scene that you're talking about, I think is one of my favourite bits in any comedy. Because they've already set up that Dean Lerner can't act. <laughs> the infamous talking head where Richard Iwadi says, one of my favourite things. I've not, I've not acted since. A lot of people said that I wasn't acting during. But those would be unkind people. <laughs> and he, there's a bit where he's... he's because also, Dark Place is such a misconceived show. I mean, the show within the yeah, show. Yeah, because yeah. it's supposed to be like a supernatural hospital drama. But Dean Lerner's character is the police chief from Lethal Weapon. Yes. Like, so he's constantly talking about how people need to do things by the book. Which yeah. is not medical slang. He's always got a shotgun. Um, on the sound thing, by the way, before we go off that, um, yeah. I asked Matt about the sound because I was so blown away by it. And he said, right, all props to Nigel Heath, who was the sound guy at right. Hackenbacker who did this and I said it's just incredible the amount of damage that's been done to the soundtrack it's re- it's so cool yeah. and he said there was a point at which Nigel pulled an entire reel of tape off slung it all over the studio floor walked all over it and stamped on it and then wound it back onto the reel again oh, so it's actually so at the level of great. that they're actually that's going so this is why brilliant. it sounds shit because I walked all over the fucking soundtrack that's at one so point so brilliant but that's I mean it's great to hear something like that because you you really feel that this is an example of a television show where everyone who works on it yeah. was pulling in exactly the same direction. Yes. Yep. Everybody knew exactly what they were trying to achieve and that story just completely vindicates the level of yeah. depth of feeling I think a lot of us have for Dark Place. The other thing that Matt said to me was the crew were fucking brilliant. They were constantly coming up to us and going, we know how to do this wrong yeah. and, <laughs> and getting it wrong. But I think what, what's nice about that, we've had that experience when we did Touch of Cloth with yeah. Charlie Brooker where the idea is you just say to the crew, what jokes would you do? And the cameraman says, oh I've done a 360 before in, a, in an interrogation scene. Can I do a 720 and say can you push it any further they've got jokes you wouldn't think about about levels of how much smoke to put in a room that would be funny and things you're letting everyone in on the joke what this has got which is lovely and very generous for an audience especially a slightly nerdy audience is it's got an accurate depiction of how hard it is to make one of these things they don't think it's necessarily just funny that that they failed they're kind of sympathetic because the effects are pretty good they blow things up there's blood effects they're just slightly wrong and you've got the feeling that the jokes about production are empathetic yeah, to the difficulties yeah, yeah. of making a film. There's a brilliant uh, line from Awadi in an interview where, where he says, anything without dialogue was considered <laughs> this- for slow motion. <laughs> Because the shows are coming up eight minutes short. That is is my... If I try and explain to people why I love the show, (laughs) I would cite that joke. I think that joke is so fucking funny that they... Anything without dialogue... And he says in that scene, we tried to keep the slow motion away from the dialogue, (laughs) implying that there are some scenes that are just in slow motion. (laughs) And that's got and the, the number of fucking levels on that one because it goes straight out of that into an action sequence where Matt is running. Not only is he doing a stupid run that no human being could do, which has been slowed down, there's then the voiceover on it which says, As I rounded the corner, I felt muscular and compact, like corned beef. 
corned beef. <laughs> and also, do you know she does three sides of a four corridor shape <laughs> to get to the lift? A lovely joke on that Doctor Who thing where you've built a set you need to get the most use out of. I mean, you can't fucking move for gags in this thing, can you? Oh, right? that, Richard, yeah. Richard Iwadi's sight lines, everybody's <laughs> sight lines being constantly off. No one is looking at each other. Those Where they've done those singles, yeah. there is nobody else in vision. There's no yeah. one to stand there. There's no fucking eye line to go for it. So everything is all over the place. So, it's I mean, anyone, so it's, it's total comedy because yeah. the yeah, yeah. script is fucking brilliant. The li- writing like, she was I'm like not- a candle in the wind, unreliable. That, those are just... <laughs> I'm not Jesus jokes. Christ. I've come to accept that. I've come that. to accept that, yeah. <laughs> all the, the writing is phenomenal. The performances, it is so hard to act that badly. Yes. yes. It's so yes. hard to be... That, you know, like Alice Lowe, <laughs> Alice Lowe's face in the whole show, just this kind of constant mask of confusion yeah. is just astonishing. When, when she's up on the ceiling yeah. uh, doing her proper... <laughs> her big hair. The, the, full, the big hair's got bigger. Yeah. When she's doing her sort of exorcist, uh, possessed, I'll have no fury. So yeah. She's great. Yeah, That's she's a amazing. proper horror performance, but weirdly camp and pantomime but not wildly weirder yeah, than yeah. giallo or the Japanese horror. It's got a real feeling for that. Everyone's getting it right, but wrong. But wrong, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Liz Asher. Dr. Rick Douglas, MD. You've heard of me. Who in the field of medicine hasn't? Welcome to Dark Place. I've seen more auspicious starts. I wasn't planning on falling on my fanny, Dr. Douglas. I had a vision. I'm a psychic. And I'm Bo Derek. No, you're not. You're right. I'm not. I guess I use sarcasm as a defence. I see the past, the present and the future. Tough gig. Stop being sarcastic. Maybe if everyone who'd ever been close to you had died, you'd be sarcastic too. Yes, that makes sense. Come on, I'll lend you money for a coffee. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. cavalcade of cult British comedy names that constitute the supporting cast. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, Noble and Silver are in it. Yeah. And Stephen Merchant is the, is, is the chef. Is the chef who Paul keeps saying something bitch. Paul King. Director of Paddington turns up as a marauding Scotsman and a technician <laughs> who's died from excess dry ice. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> and the, and the, the Boosh are both in it. Yes, because, yeah. And, but, and every single person gets that sort of wonky not really understanding. There's one bit in a funeral where one of the... I, I think it's Silver, whose first name I've forgotten. Stuart. Stuart Silver is clearly mouthing fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Which he's clearly not supposed to be doing. But I think everyone's got... I wanted to talk about this as, as, a, as a style. There's no actual word for this style that this is in. Yeah. Which made me go, oh, but it is a thing. It's basically James Herbert's Acorn Antiques. Right, yes, yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know the joy there is in Acorn Antiques, yeah. that every department is getting a boom in the shop yeah, and, yeah, and the yeah. people are wobbling the psych at the background. Yeah. So everyone's having fun. And I think the first sketch we ever wrote that I loved writing for at school was yeah. about a nativity play going wrong. Yeah. And when we wrote Framley, that's about a local paper where everyone's not quite skilled enough to get it right. Yeah, yeah. There's something so funny in a slightly unskilled art of course acting, yeah. hammy, the play that goes wrong style of... Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, was yeah. it National Theatre of Brent? National Theatre, yeah. yeah. It's so. just... It always works. It's always joyous. Everyone gets the joke. Yeah. Everyone's invited in. It's a bit panto. Yeah. There's a little wink to the audience that says, this isn't really happening. That's in bloody Mrs. Brown's box. Yeah, of course. Yeah, It's yeah, a wink yeah. to the audience to say, don't worry, this isn't really happening. It even happens in Father Ted. There's a yeah. little layer of unreality that is a space into which you can insert all the jokes in the world. And the moment you make comedy that is entirely real, yeah. which is a voguing comedy that's got quite big recently and works brilliantly a lot of yeah, the time, yeah. you lose this voice. Yeah. And I really miss it. When we write Kunk, I'm very aware that we're in this tradition where we can't go yeah. too far into it because the documentary's been made and put out. Yeah. But there's a there's a gag in in one of the Kunks, might be Kunk on Christmas, where Diane kicks a table as she sits down to interview Jay Rayner. And I rewound and watched that about 100 times because I haven't seen that on television in about 10 years. Someone just kicking a table as they sit down, which is basically all of Acorn Antiques and all of Gotham. Yeah, and, his yeah, dark yeah. and I grabbed it like I missed it. It's so <laughs> funny. when At one point, when Alice Lloyd first walks on, she like bends down and they've clearly mistimed the cat. So then you yes. just see these two hands throw a cat out of the door. And like, you just, it just, everything is going wrong constantly. The lovely bit where Alice is up on the ceiling where Matt is uh, meant to be, uh, Garth Marenghi is meant to be, oh, no, it's not even Garth Marenghi, is it? It's 
Douglas, Douglas is meant Dr. to be Rick being Douglas. attacked by a telekinetic fire extinguisher. <laughs> and it's just Garth Marengli vaguely sort of tapping himself with what's clearly a rubber fire extinguisher. <laughs> it's so pathetic. It's wonderful. And then he just he throws it off himself. Yeah. He just throws him off That's the kind of fight up. you've seen a dozen times done by William Shatner or Adam West. Yeah, it's, where you're yeah. trying to fight a snake that's just a rubber snake. It's, but it's a fire extinguisher. <laughs> so, and also, like, I mean, Richard Iwadi's whole performance, there was just a year. So I, I was at university when we started watching the show and this, there was just a year where I was just being Dean Lerner on stage like in all the sketches and it was like it was a, there was just a year is where it an addictive just, voice it's the most addictive thing to do and it, it's not just that it's also like it's not just the way he's saying it like the rhythm of his speech listen Douglas you may be a live wire maverick when he's not biting the hand that feeds him which in your case is this hand like it's all like it's it's, just, it's all everything is off in yeah. the way in his delivery like he's either too early or too late on everything and it's it, like it's so funny and it, there were a couple of years where everybody spoke like David Brent because yes, it's yeah, such yes. a is it yeah like it's yeah, such an it's addictive isn't it? yeah. rhythm and for certainly for us there was a year where I basically just was on doing sketches just as Richard Iwadi and there was a year where Ed Gamble was basically Matt <laughs> in Gothamburg's Star Place I was also doing in the same sketch group with Tom Neenan who's a brilliant comedy writer and yeah. who works with me on the mash and Tom and I then did a double act for a couple of years called The Gentleman of Leisure which was Tom was a is a big fan of National Theatre of Brent so yeah. and he and it, the idea of the gentleman of pleasure was we were two people presenting the culture show who were complete idiots oh. and it was so much of it it was just 50 percent the day-to-day and the other 50 percent goth merengue almost everyone who's come on this podcast who's talked about something they loved has said it just took me over it became yeah. my voice and they're like the stabilizers you put on the bike at the beginning you go as long as i'm within alan partridge's rails then i'm going to be okay yeah yeah and oh, the amount of chris morris we borrowed from i was really shocked to re-listened to the National Theatre of Brent they did a comeback thing a couple of years ago I listened to it and went oh my god it's just kunk we have just <laughs> kunk is basically me writing Patrick Barlow that's all it is and reminding me of how much I'd love that today Wallace and myself are standing as it were at the very portals of history awaiting embarkation on the proud French vessel the HMS Versailles so come with us now as we journey back through the portholes of time itself Portals. Oh, I get it. Back through the portholes of time itself. They go in and they're addictive and you chew them and then you find them coming out of your mouth. Oh, in, in conversation, the one that has stained me most is Keskel Adif. <laughs> that, 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 I say, I say Keskel Adif, like, constantly. Is that why you called me in? As far as I can tell, some dames just bang their bonds, Keskel Adif. Wait, I have more things to say. Go on, sorry for the interruption. Don't mention it. She's saying there's something supernatural going on. I don't even connect it anymore to the fact that I got it from Dark Place. I love his attempts at pretension, where he obviously says he doesn't care about literary society. I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. They're all cowards. <laughs> but he doesn't care about that thing. And yet he I'm one of the few people who's written more books written than they've read. read. <laughs> but yet he aspires to being... He's got a lovely sort of hyacinth bouquet pomposity to him. Yeah. There's that brilliant thing where he just ends a, a, an intro by going... Bon appetit. Bon appetit. <laughs> Which means you've read that and you've never heard it. You've never I, been to France. The, we could do a whole podcast about the line, uh, a lot of writers use subtext and those writers are cowards. Like that, <laughs> it, there's 
so much to talk about. Yes, yes. What's, what's great about that is one of the essences of him that I think is absolutely brilliant is his is the depiction that Matt has got absolutely spot on. And Matt is brilliant at this and remains being brilliant at this about wounded masculinity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a study yeah. of probably even more than Partridge of a man who knows what he's meant to act like, a yeah. tough guy, but is absolutely broken inside. Yeah. It's just wonderful. There's a one of his horror stories was he said it could be said to be the first feminist horror book though it did offend a lot of women which <laughs> <laughs> is a perfect I mean all those one liners and two lines they're all character yeah and the character is behind this uh, swaggery leather jacketed yeah. persona who just talks about things people can't face yeah is a man who's really frightened yeah yeah if you took away my paper I'd write on my heart if you took away my ink I'd write on the wind. Wouldn't be an ideal way to work. <laughs> I, well, I love the fact that he refers to the, the there's been a broadcasting crisis, and so I've had to go into my very substantial basement. Yes, like, yeah. he refers to the size of his basement. <laughs> like he's there's so much. The assumption is in all the dramas that Rick Douglas's character is the womanizer. Yes, he's yes. cast himself as the most desired man. Yeah, and there's a great yeah, episode against where, Matt Berry. It's just brilliant. Liz, fancy egg and soup. I'm free this evening. No, I think I'll wash my hair. I'll put some sounds on. There's a bad atmosphere in here. Why won't she be mine? I wish I was more attractive like Douglas. Well, the fact that we've not even touched on Matt Berry. <laughs> like, the fact that there's so much going on in this show. There's no room for Matt there's Berry. There's no room for blasted monkey hands. Like... <laughs> He his voice it's it's so funny because the sort of Americans that I meet are kind of American comedy geeks who might be over yeah. here gigging or at festivals and they all talk about Dark Place and now they all love Toast of London yeah yeah, yeah. and like Matt Berry's voice is such a this sort of wild distinctive it's thing. part of the foley it's part of the sound mix yeah, the fact it that is, that voice yeah. is doing I mean I I think that he's never transcended this this is what that voice was for this like voice a, fits here like a pube on a pipe <laughs> like it's so yeah and also one of our favourite jokes and the thing that we got obsessed with is that and again this just speaks to the love and the detailing that went into this show mm. the commentaries on the DVD are all done in character oh my god and they and it is clear that Matt Berry is not paying attention to any of them. And in the last one, he uh, like, sort of at the beginning of the episode, he goes, oh, this is the one with my song. And he then clearly zones out. And the plot of the last episode is... Somebody, yes, please do describe it. It's wonderful. It's, people get... He falls in love with a woman who is turning into broccoli. <laughs> and so that's the whole plot of the episode. The whole time she's getting more and more broccoli. And right at the end of the episode, on the commentary, <laughs> Matt Berry just goes... Why is she green? Like, he's not paying attention to any of it. He's not even looked at the screen when they're recording the comedy. He's so zoned out. This is this is also the amazing episode where there is a sequence in which Sanchez, because he's had sex with the woman who's turning into broccoli, there's a danger that there's a 50% chance that he will also turn into broccoli. And the only way to save him is to cut his penis off. But the sequence in which he has his penis removed was destroyed in a drunken episode where Richard Iwadi has to do this it's basically this hostage video to the screen explaining how how upset he is that uh, that this ever happened and that he shouldn't and he regrets having destroyed this can of footage. Also, we we should probably also talk about the fact that there is definitely a strong inference 
that Dean Lerner killed the actress who played Liz. Yes. Like, there is a yes. w- one of the they keep, weirdest... They keep under- saying the actors who were available the to the interview. The actors who were available <laughs> to interview. And he, at one point, like, I don't know where she is. I like to think that... And he's, like, speculating on where she is. And there's quite a clear inference that he has killed her. Yes. <laughs> I did ask Matt that because I wondered. I said, where's Madeleine Walden? Yeah. And why isn't she in the Talking Heads? And he just said, um, she is missing presumed dead <laughs> with a very heavy emphasis on the dead. <laughs> <laughs> the writing exists on one level. It would be possible to do this with a bunch of Zucker Brothers one-liners. Yeah, yeah. Zinger, counter-zinger. And they've got a few of those. There's more of those in episode one than there are later on, actually. Yeah, yeah. They've got that lovely one. So go back to your lab and make me a pill that can cure madness, or I'll kick your ass so hard you'll be able to build a pole in the footprint. Understood? As crystal. Which is yeah, a yeah. great yeah, yeah. sort of Leslie Nielsen of a, a yeah, one-two. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. But what's great, I think, as you watch more of it and get more into it, is that almost all of the one-liners are character or backstory. Yeah, that's right, yeah. You can look through the one-liner to see something about a character's insecurity or yeah. something that they're hiding. It's, they're very, very cleverly done. It's all to do with sketching character. And yeah. when people tend to say, I don't want to see parody, because parody is um, seen as a... It's a comedy writer's favourite thing. It's why Spinal yeah. Tap is loved and, yeah, and this is loved. But actually, parody doesn't have to just refer to the object of the parody. There can be characters within a parody. Yeah, yeah. Nigel Tufnell is a thoroughly real person, yeah. as well as a reference to guitarists yeah. in British heavy metal bands. And what I love about this is there is a sitcom of people, yeah. especially in the little onion skin layer outside the show, yeah. where you get little hints of what the relationship is between the publisher and, that, and, and that's the why I think it is genuinely hard to characterise, because it is parody, but... It is also there is elements of sort of character sitcom, yeah, and the mockumentary. So even though it's such a small fraction of the overall episode, there's so much richness and detail. Some of which is, did he murder her? It's part of a of a habit that started around this time that you didn't want to see. I mean, an old sitcom. I mean, the classic sitcom is based on single set, recorded as quickly as possible, and probably delivered to an audience who had gone to see theatre. Yeah. And so they would have gone to see an Alan Aitborn play. So the good life looks a bit like an Alan Aitborn play. It's yeah. about suburban, there's French windows. And then around this time, you start to get layers added into sitcom, either things like Peep Show, which are adding a voiceover or an internal monologue, or a bit more to camera yeah. uh, stuff with some camera business, or a mockumentary like The Office where there are scenes inserted within it that give you another layer beyond yeah. just watching a play. And this is a very extreme and very weird example of that extra layer that was added to a lot of sitcoms yeah. around this time where you got a chance to see the people off guard yeah. as well as in performance. And it, it's sort of never gone away that now I think it would be very, very hard to do a sitcom that didn't have a narrator layer or an internal monologue layer yeah, or a mockumentary sure. layer. They look a bit slow. Yeah, it's the, yeah, and it's catering for a different audience. So you're exactly right. You're taking an audience that we're used to seeing theatre and then giving them a sitcom that works within that grammar. This very much is aimed at a generation that have grown up on television. Yeah, yeah and, and also DVD. Yeah, I mean, this DVD, is, yeah. The, the, the whole show is about DVD extras yeah, almost, yeah. isn't it? It's about it, yeah. a thing that was only just coming in. Yeah, completely. And, I, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder whether that's what... Maybe it was sort of ahead of its time. I mean, I wonder how people getting into it now relate to it because I feel like it was a very specific period of time when 
DVD commentaries were a thing, and mm. but it is very much a parody that works within the kind of vocabulary of television shows and the way television yes, yeah. is made. And you know, you it trusts the audience to understand that when that jump cut happens, oh, that's a mistake. Like that was yeah. they fucked something up in that because we all know basically what goes on with the television show. The great thing about parody when a parody's done really well. You don't have to have seen the source material. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The parody is the key that allows you to understand the source material. You could watch this, and then I imagine if you watch Salem's Lot, you'd go, ah, that's what they're doing. There are a lot of things I've seen the parody versions of, and yeah. then seen the real thing afterwards. I think there's a mistake very often when commissioning and things that you're doing a joke for a niche audience. Yeah, sure. By saying it's just for people who've already seen the source material. But actually, when it's done this well, you can understand. Can I also, if people who like Arthur Marenghi's Dark Place, I really should, would strongly recommend you also see a film called Black Dynamite. Black, Which Black I've never Dynamite heard of. is a parody of black exploitation films. Oh. And it is, it, it's, and it, it kind of gives, it doesn't have the layer of mockumentary, but the level of detailing is um, absolutely incredible. And it, it functions the same comedically as a lot of Dark Place. There's a character in it who keeps reading the stage directions. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. a really hard thing to do I think when you're doing this the temptation is because it's such a fun key to play in the yeah, everything's yeah. gone wrong key that the question always pops up well how did this get released yeah of course and yeah, I, I, yeah. the usual answer is it was low budget there wasn't a chance to reshoot which is the one we always use so yeah, yeah. the joy of Dark Place is that it's a low budget yeah. exercise also directed by a very vain man. Well, and also directed by, <laughs> directed and produced by two people who have no idea how to make TV. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's, you know. But you have to get that stuff to stand up first. You mustn't, it would be very hard to do that joke with a Star Wars pastiche. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. a Harry Potter pastiche. Yeah. And very often when you see slightly shit parodies, they do, oh, wouldn't it be funny if everything went wrong on a Harry Potter set? Yeah. And you go, yeah, that doesn't stand up because they are rigorously yeah, edited and they've got loads of money. Yeah, it just strikes me as being a really bastard ambitious debut. This, I mean, yeah, it's so yeah, ambitious. absolutely. It's yeah, considering... it's still ambitious now. Yeah. You know, even by today's standards, you look at it and go, "Fucking hell!" But also, taken so could, many risks. But there's something delightful in in the the richness of all the minds working together to make one thing on every level. Yeah, yeah. But it is a bold move. I mean, they had come. I mean, they must have been pretty young yeah. when this was being made. They would have been in their 20s. Is this why no Whoa. one's Edinburgh show is allowed to... I mean, this is regarded in TV terms as a folie de grandeur, a sort of failure. Yeah. And, and comedians love it and they say it's brilliant, but it's noticeable that for years afterwards, if you went to anyone and said, we want to do a pastiche, they looked at you with a kind of, but remember Garth Marenghi right, on their okay. face. I was always convinced this was one of the things that had sort of dented the taste of pastiche on TV. Right. Even though you look at it and you go, well, this is a total success. Yeah, I mean, so funny. It wouldn't have even occurred to me because it's, to me, it's one of the kind of key things that got so many people I know into comedy yeah. and being comedy yeah. fans and in a lot of cases doing comedy. Well, I mean, yeah, again, you're Velvet Underground. Yeah, it's works perfectly. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Velvet Underground are great. And you're going, well, if you're EMI, maybe you don't want the Velvet Underground because <laughs> they only sold 10,000 <laughs> copies. It's, it's a, probably a, Related to our thing about about comedy slots being really competitive now. Yeah, sure. Is there room anymore to make something which just succeeds? Yeah, it needs to please a mass audience. It needs to get because you're fighting for those those slots and those budgets. Now. Yeah, I wonder how the I wonder how the DVD sold in the end because just because it it does have this it's 
own life. That... Is it just us? Are, did they, <laughs> you know, tell, like, the phone mat up and say, well, there you go, it was 68. 68 <laughs> no, it's not DVD. just and us. We knew, we knew everyone. <laughs> we, did a, we did a radio series last year called Ongstrom, yeah. which Matt was in, yeah. and when it got announced, I, th- I can't tell you how many fucking messages yeah. I yeah. got from complete strangers on Twitter saying, ask him when he's doing more Dark yeah, Place. Yeah, yeah. I think it has been allowed to settle, mm. and it has Got, it has found its audience because it, I yeah. mean it's so good because I was talking to Tom Neenan yesterday about coming on the show and we were talking about two things that have come up in this conversation which is this idea that did it kill the idea of the Edinburgh show becoming yeah. a TV TV thing but also we were talking quite specifically about how Matt's made a pure horror film yeah. which makes kind of dramas and Alice Lowe yeah. is starring in and writing and directing horror movies yeah. and it, it is yeah. fascinating you know that the three of them have gravitated to and, and when you look back on it you go yeah because you you really love that genre they understood really it you love yeah. it and understand it yeah. and that's yeah. why you're able to make comedy about Actually, it because you love it so much the, the, the three of those I mean Matt Barry I'm saying is an, as an outlier here because you, I mean, he's an outlier even within the show he looks like he's been hired yeah. in that, there's, there's a joke in his sitting sort of slightly on top of the show yeah. but the other, the other three of them it's the same as the League of Gentlemen yeah who were a similar sort of era, who then went into serious gothic off the back of this because they're good at it. They are visually astute and film literate and television literate. They they get it, don't they? Yeah, get it. They're a similar group of people and a similar dynamic. And because I think this got sort of sat on and a bit culty and disappeared, whereas The League of Gentlemen was a a bigger mainstream hit, everyone goes, well, of course, it's natural that those guys should carry on working in this field and be be allowed access to the big toy box to make horror all the time. But actually, these guys are very similar. Yeah, you're right. They're absolute students of film and television yeah. and it makes complete sense that three of them I mean it, what's interesting about Matt Berry is that he's the kind of one who's still flying the flag for stupid and weird comedy <laughs> yes Toast of London there's definitely the spirit of Garth Marenghi in Toast <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah I'm convinced this gets funnier every time I watch it you know yes I yeah. really am it just it rewards repeat viewing so yes so flatteringly. I hadn't incredible. noticed before the phrase, many of, many of us will feel he exploded too young. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 the idea that I could have missed a line that good last time. The thing I only, the thing I only noticed today was like in the, the first card of the show has got a fucking gag in it, which is Garth Marenghi and no. Dean Lerner presents. You've got, you've got the wrong verb at the end there. <laughs> Two of them, and you put it in the singular. Also, well I done. I'd, I'd never noticed that the special effects are done by Dinamatronics. Yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, music by some Scandinavian Barrington yeah. Fellong type, yeah. but based Bastard on melody or something. But based, based on, on melodies whistled by melodies. He couldn't let that guy yeah. have all the credit. No, he can't let him go. And even, so you get that that great thing of the of the asshole writer being absolutely seeped through. It means that all those lines given to other characters also stand up on the fact that this is Garth Marenghi's yeah, dialogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you get Julian Barrett as the padre saying, well, uh, you're the most compassionate man I know, and I know God. <laughs> come on, come to padre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's a great joke for the padre, but it's also a great it's, joke about the writer. Joke that you it's all play. in there, isn't it? It's like, it, I think it is, that is the key ingredient to the stuff that really fires comedy nerds, I think, is the ability to be able to repeatedly watch it by making something so joke dense. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that that's the thing, this kind of common strain that runs through Garth Marenghi 
Arrested Development, 30 Rock, um, and then going back to The Simpsons, which yeah. is that they've put so many gags everywhere. It's generous. Is de- yeah, I, it's, I think what, yeah. what it does is, well, I think if you're a comedy nerd, and most comedy writers and performers are yeah. excellent current comedy nerds, it says to you, you'll need to work this hard. Yeah. And I think that there's no way that you'd watch this and go, this is kind of half-assed. Yeah, of course. It's yeah, a yeah. frighteningly yeah. dense and worked thing. At the end of an episode of this, you might say, I don't find it funny, because that's down to personal taste. Yeah. But you couldn't say the people who made it did it cynically <sighs> no. or were being lazy or that someone might not find it funny. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's, that frightens people about commissioning comedy and making comedy is they're worried someone's going to say, that's not funny, I hate that, I hate you, yeah. you're fired. A thing that has never, ever happened, but they seem to be frightened <laughs> of it. But what's good about a programme like this is it says, OK, this has not got like heartbreaking drama in it. Yeah. None of the things that you might use to prop up a comedy in case it wasn't funny. Yeah, yeah. It's just surviving it's on jokes. It's just funny, yeah. But it's, at the end yeah. of it, I, like the day-to-day or whatever, you couldn't say they failed. No. There's so much effort made and <laughs> so much and also it's generous to your audience in terms of the, how much they're offering us but also it assumes a huge amount of intelligence on the audience's part. Yes, like it, yeah. it, it, to read it. Yeah, to read it. Like they, they, it just assumes that the audience is going to go with it, and they they yeah. give the audience. They're generous both in terms of the amount of jokes they're offering us, but they're generous in the amount of credit they give us as a viewer. And they, yeah, you know, it uh, doesn't patronise us. That might be one of the reasons it appeals to comedy nerds, and I think the other one might be that I think they're also showing you they're working here, aren't they? Yeah. They're showing you how they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Because all the mechanism is so visible because Garth Marenghi isn't a very good writer yeah. and he's not a very good actor yeah. and he's not a very good director. So what you're seeing is this is how these things are bolted together. Yeah. We'll show you how this works. It's exactly the equivalent of when you listen to, again, we go back to the Velvet Underground, where they would pan the guitars hard left and hard right. Yeah. So you could listen to that and you go, oh, that's how you make a song. Yeah. And actually, the, the, the kit that's been used to make this very bad programme is the kit you use to make very good programmes. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little sort of primer, if you've not worked in television, on how a television programme is Made. They're yeah. fascinated in the gadgetry and the m- machinery of it. Again, very Acorn Antiques. It's total nerd bait in every single level. In order to do this, I rewatched it all. Yeah. And I hadn't taken the DVD out and I forgot that the inlay is all in character. Oh, like the whole, like there's no. You know they ha- they introduce the actors they do- as in the actors within Dark Place. Yeah. Like Madeline Wool. Like they it doesn't. There's no, there's nothing. Like, it's the only thing, the only concession to it is that the credits are credits. Yeah. That's yeah. the only yes, concession right. to this being a TV programme that's being made. Do yeah. you want to join this club? And there's yeah. something very appealing in that. Comedy is that. You want, comedy is tribal, comedy, your identity is tied up in comedy. What yeah. do you find funny? Your sense of humour, very personal. Yeah. And something that says, okay, some people might not get this, Yeah. but this is for you. That's fair enough. Yeah. That's a basic thing with jokes. What we laugh at tells us who we are. Yeah. And this is, I suppose, the ultimate example of something which is a sealed box that you're invited to open up if you want to and climb inside and join them there. But they're obviously having the best laugh in this world. And this is the kind of thing, no one's making something they don't want to make. No one's making something that they don't find funny. Yeah. You're being invited to join in with some people who are having a brilliant time. And that includes... The rest of the audience, fans of this kind of thing, yeah. but also the cast and crew are having a yeah. laugh as well. Oh, fucking Adrian Hewitt's music is sensational, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's it's. He must have had so much fun yeah. doing that. Just going, it's oh, so I'm going to do one of those. It, that yeah. is the loudest theme tune ever recorded. <laughs> 
Frank. What, what it sounds like is an old TV. Yeah. Yeah. It's going through as the speakers are rattling in the plastic. It's just that level of detail. Also, the plates where you can just see the strings. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole episode where the hospital is attacked by floating cutlery. Yeah. yeah. And so you can just see the strings. Because you can see the strings just enough. Just yeah. enough. It's, it's not, not bad. Just, no. But also then it cuts back to Dean Lerner explaining why the strings are there. And it, even he gets it wrong and he goes... If you go to a puppet show, you can see the wires, but it's about the puppets. It's not about the string. You go to a Punch and Judy show and you're only watching the wires... You're a freak. You go, there aren't any strings in Punch and Judy. You picked the one puppet show where there are no strings. Uh, it's... Again, more levels, more stuff that's flattering the audience. That joke just lies there until you dig into it a bit. And you yeah. might get that the second or third time around. It's a thing made for DVD watching. It's yeah, a thing made to be yeah. owned and shared. It's an amazing artefact to have survived on what I imagine must only be word of mouth. Because I don't think it went down that well when it came out. No, I don't this think is, it did very good numbers either, did it? Was it was passed around. That we were we're still talking about it. Yeah, when, we were, you know, when I was at university, it was like, as soon as the DVD came out, everyone was, you know, handing yeah. it around. And, yeah. it, it, and it's amazing because of the internet, it has travelled to America and international comedy nerd community is now, it's like a thing that you can say to people, comedy nerds from anywhere, and go, you can talk about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Is this our article of faith? This should be on the flag. <laughs> this is it comedy nerds if you raise your flag it's got Garth Marenghi's reckon, stupid face on it we should try and get Garth Marenghi onto a banknote I reckon so. I mean, Dickens has been on there and he's definitely he's definitely written longer books than Dickens yeah <laughs> um, shall we just say thank you so much for bringing Oh, no, thank you, guys. What an opportunity. Thank you more than we can possibly I'm so happy to have... I'm sore from laughing. This is brilliant. I haven't rewatched it in ages. I think it is now all on 4OD. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. But I I am 100% confident that everyone listening to this podcast... Is a Garth Marenghi fan like already? Yeah. Like it feels like your podcast sits exactly in the middle of. <laughs> yeah, which makes it such a brilliant choice of thing to bring on. But also, I would say this because I, I was really struck by this, having sat and watched them in a row. What I was really, really wanted to do, but ran out of time, was to watch them all again in a row yeah, because yeah, you yeah. could just I could keep yeah, watching yeah. this well, forever and, and also, ever. Then, if you have the DVDs, I mean, this is the, the, the one shame of kind of streaming stuff. If you have the DVDs. The commentaries are full of an- there's like another sitcoms worth in the commentaries. It's Joy amazing. So that is a generosity that is really seldom found, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Nish. And it isn't very nice when you're left alone. You let you treat you badly if you hang on the phone. Take off. Shove your loving on the wheels. Put the pedal to the floor because you're heading for the hills. Got to get away. Can't take it anymore. Man, you don't need this. Leave her at the door. The door. The door. The door. Sam, open the door. <laughs>